0: podcast all about the religious side of life. Every week, we chat about different religions, spiritualities, and other beliefs. We do roundtable discussions, deep dives into histories and religious studies theories, and interview different religious leaders or practitioners. For full transcripts and more information on each episode, you can find us at nearlynuminous.ca. Hello, hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Nearly Numinous. We're so excited because we are chatting with Laura Chagnon here, and Laura is a yoga teacher, artist, and activist in Kingston, Ontario, which is where we were originally from before half of us moved away. (laughs) And today she's going to talk with us about yoga and the gender binary. We're gonna get into the idea of language surrounding the feminine and masculine energy that's often brought up in yoga or other spiritual teachings. We'll get a little bit into how Laura chooses to navigate yoga beyond the binary in her own teachings and personal philosophies and worldviews. So thanks so much for joining us, Laura. Thank you, Thanks for having me. This is really exciting. All right. So maybe to just get started, um, we want to make sure like t- typically on our podcast, we like to make sure that we're uh, providing more plain language and explaining concepts for people that might not previously understand them. Um, so maybe in some basic terms, can you explain what the gender binary is um, and then maybe what is non-binary, what is gender fluidity and the terms that like will probably bring up a lot throughout this discussion?
1: Yeah. Um, so I don't have any authority in deciding what that means, but I can talk about my own understanding. Um, so the binary is a system of classifying um, gender into two separate distinct gender, the masculine gender and the feminine gender. So it's called binary because by bi means two. <laughs> There's only two of them uh, according to that uh, belief system. Uh, so if you take that non-binary would mean that you don't fit into that structure. Uh, That's the case of a lot of queer people, uh, people who don't uh, feel like they belong to a closed box of a gender. um, So who don't fit into that um, structure divided into the masculine or the feminine, they're somewhere in between or they just don't want to identify with it at all.
2: Okay, and sometimes you hear these sort of terms, especially floating around in like the yoga world, like masculine and feminine energy. Can you explain what your understandings, your understanding of what those terms mean to you?
1: Yeah. um, So that's a really good question, because I think uh, (laughs) actually my point is, I don't know what it means. Tell me what it means when you say that. Um, I think like a part of the issue I take with using that kind of binary language is that it's kind of used as a shortcut to mean something else. And it's kind of uh, depending on the idea that we share somehow a collective understanding of what masculine means or feminine means. I think that's not true. Um, mm-hmm. So I think when, in general, like people will use that kind of language in a yoga class and they talk about masculine energy, uh, they're meaning like uh, something that's fiery or strong or proactive. And when they talk about feminine energy, they're talking about something more passive or uh, creative and soft. Um, and that's, that's, you know, I think it's important to remember that um, we have all of these shades of emotionality and behavior inside of all of ourselves. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's not as simple <laughs> as that and also what do you mean just say what you mean I don't understand <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah for sure um I think just to maybe add for our listeners I've also heard quite often I hear masculine energy defined as um business forward so I think personally in like the social yeah right I can <laughs> you can't see this on the recording but Laura's making a face, (laughs) but I follow a lot of um, like entrepreneurs and like specifically female entrepreneurs, um, a lot of which are very interested in. Energies, Um, a lot of them move to Bali and like kind of like those styles of people, Um, and they often talk about how they need to channel their masculine energy uh, to run their business. Mm. Um, So that's just another example of what I've heard and I think we'll get maybe a little bit more into this later about why. Yeah. I mean, if you've listened to this podcast before, I think what was it in the news May edition, I went on a very extensive rant about how I hate that language Mm -hmm. and why do people Mm -hmm. say that? Um, Yeah. But anyway, all right. So I think hopefully I think those are going to be some of the main terms that we're going to talk about um, throughout this episode and hopefully that gives our listeners at least like a little bit of an understanding of like like when we just throw around those language, that language, what we're talking about when we throw that language around. Um, so now maybe getting into more of like the meat of the episode. Um, maybe give us a little bit of background up about you. Um, whatever you feel comfortable sharing, whatever, just who you are as a person. Why, why are you here today?
1: Hi, it's me, Laura. Um, I am outside right now in my uh, backyard in Kingston, Cataraqui in Ontario. Um, There is the wind with me and the trees are with me. I am 26 years old. Um, I am a newcomer to Canada. I am from France. Um, I am an arts worker. I'm a mindfulness and yoga facilitator. I also wanted to mention that um, occupying the space for me, I think I need to contextualize it a little bit. Um, So I just wanted to mention that I'm very white. (laughs) I'm European. Uh, I have no South uh, Asian heritage. I have no Indian heritage uh, whatsoever. So I love talking about yoga. I love talking about um, all that kinds of stuff, but I don't represent uh, South Asian people. I don't speak on behalf of their tradition. We're gonna, I think, mention some uh, traditional practices and storytelling. So just a reminder that this is my positionality. Um, and we're gonna talk about uh, queerness and non-binarism. So I'm queer, uh, but I'm cisgender. So I also don't spe- speak on behalf of uh, non-binary people either. Um, so what else do I do? So i live in Kingston, I teach classes. So you get classes at a couple of yoga studios. Um, I also teach a monthly series that I just uh, finished the first, um, one today. Uh, it's called Mutualite Mondays, um, and I teach uh, yoga to raise money for mutual aid initiatives. So, yeah, I think that's a pretty good over, <laughs> overview.
2: It is. Thank you. Yeah,
1: also, I'm an Aries. I don't know if that's interesting.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, for, for listeners, Laura and I have um, found out that we share some similarities, predominantly that we're both Aries, and I think we're both number four Enneagrams. Yeah. Interesting. Okay.
2: (laughs) And to get into the topic of uh, why we're here today, what got you interested in yoga?
1: Yeah, so I actually started doing yoga when I was 19. So the whole story is that I was actually recovering from anorexia. And I was looking for a way to make peace with my body, I would say, and a way to just move softly move without like competition uh so something that wasn't going to trigger me per se um so i was living in scotland at the time and they had like a yoga society it's a little club and uh (laughs) you could take classes for two pounds so that was super cheap oh wow um so i took the beginner's yoga class for four months for like twice a week i would go And I always say that it saved my life and I really mean it. (laughs) Um, I really believe that. Um, So I think that's what got me hooked. Also, the other thing is um, when I lived in Europe. So that was like four years ago, so I don't know how it is now. But uh, yoga was very different. There It was a lot more humble, simple. It was really far away from capitalism or anything like that. When I moved here, uh, it was a big shock. But um, yeah, I would say yoga gave me peace. Uh, it gave me peace with my body when I was really in need of that. So that's how I get interested.
0: So you mentioned kind of that. Obviously, yoga is very different um, from your perspective, from what you experienced in Europe versus what you experienced here. Um, do you want to maybe give like a few examples of like what you noticed when when you saw that shift?
1: yeah uh well so really simple examples is um when i was practicing in in scotland and then i moved back to paris and i practiced there for a bit is um the spaces where you would practice would be just like really simple like rooms that you could see the teacher had rented for 20 bucks um no anything fancy there was no real yoga studio so you would practice in gyms or in other fitness spaces or art spaces or educational spaces. And everybody was wearing like joggers and ugly t-shirts that you use when you paint your house, that kind of stuff. Um, So yeah, it, it just felt uh, a lot less um, fitness oriented in the language as well. Uh, And in the way it was just presented, it was just softer, a little more stretchy, And there was no, no abomination such as beer yoga, wine yoga, to yoga, (laughs) or whatever people are coming up with here. Um, Just like yeah, way more simple. And when I moved to Ottawa, I was I went to my first yoga class, and my teacher had like a Britney Spears mic. And she had like a perm and she had like a full face of makeup and really fancy clothes that were like color coordinated and i was just like where am i what is this it was super weird yeah
0: yeah so do you think um that's maybe and maybe this is a twofold question um has that really affected your personal experience of yoga especially now that you're a yoga teacher and maybe kind of trailing off into that like what elements of yoga are mm-hmm. really important to you then and like what aspects are really important? Yeah, to
1: you. Uh, I'd say it affected me a little, but I'm really thankful that I already had a good practice. I already had, um, you know, a closeness to the discipline. I already had some confidence in my own understanding of what, how my body moved. Uh, so I was able to continue practicing in these spaces without letting them influence me too much. And uh, you would just pick the teachers that spoke to you. Like, I never went back to that Britney Spears my class. Um, I just found another teacher that felt a little bit more authentic and that I resonated with more. And I just stayed with her for the whole time I lived there. Um, The way that it influences me as a teacher, I would say, is I aim for the exact opposite of that. Um, I just want to be authentic, and I want to mess up, and I want to be weird and make non-funny jokes in class. And uh, I don't want to look anything like (laughs) I'm a fancy like Pilates Pilates teacher or anything like that. Um, (laughs) I would say, yeah, to tie it in with what I'm interested in with yoga is actually this idea of this hyper focus on the physical um, that we can find in North America is actually something that I'm trying to stay very far away from. Um, Yoga is... I mean, it's going to sound like a little cliche, but yoga is a way of life. Like it's a it's a philosophy. It's a path to spirituality. It's sacred practice that has been around for thousands, thousands and thousands of years. So I think one thing that I like reminding um, my students and the people around me are, is that um, yoga actually has eight limbs. So eight steps. Uh, to enlightenment that's the goal enlightenment (laughs) or at least peace (laughs) um and the i think movement also called asana is only the third one and it's only one of them like everything else is oh like how to lead an ethical life um (laughs) what are the practices to stay healthy and mindful throughout your life uh a whole limb is meditation and how to attain you know, that kind of state. Um, so in my path, I'm really, really, really grateful that my encounter with yoga was a little more grounded than what you see in big studios here. So the other thing that they had in the studios, with the Yoga Society um, in Scotland, in Edinburgh, is that they also had a free weekly meditation class. And that's what really like got me like hooked, hooked. So I really loved movement and moving my body, but it just switches your life around when you start meditating with the community, when you're 20 years old, like (laughs) it's a game changer. Um, It's a super powerful tool can lead to really beautiful transformations. So mindfulness is something that I'm really into. It's something that I believe that yoga is, it's not about exercise or like just the simple, like body movement. It's, about not lying, it's about not harming, it's about being compassionate, practicing mindfulness. Um, I think in the West, in North America, um, specifically, uh, yoga has been completely like compacted and like capitalized obviously. And they've just really like compacted what is a sacred life path (laughs) into like a theme fitness class almost. And that's a bummer, really a big bummer, Uh, I think. I think a lot about like what we call spiritual bypassing so this idea of like hashtag good vibes only so bad vibes forbidden this is only a positive space so that's the idea of spiritual bypassing so this is ridiculous but it's also harmful Mm -hmm. because it means oh no dissent no fighting no one dare disturb this status quo don't please (laughs) don't raise your voice uh that's definitely what not what yoga is about uh so I'm more interested in like a holistic approach that kind of takes into consideration the whole story of it. So eight eight of the limbs, the full path. So, you know, that what I'm interested in is not like encapsulated into like a monthly pass to a fancy yoga studio. I don't care if you can do a headstand. Are you kind to yourself? I don't care if, if, if you're flexible. Like, are you dedicating your life? To leaving the world better than you found it because that's that's what we're really thinking about and talking about here the other thing that's really hyper focusing on the physical i think is social media it's really weird it's really weird space to be in when it, this like this is the message that you're trying to get across that <laughs> holisticism and like mindfulness uh because everything is really consistent Constrained and everything is about appearance and how things look. So it's really tricky. I find and I try to be kind of mindful and not posting anything that feeds into like a harmful perspective of, of what yoga is. So no hyper focus on my body, on the shapes that it can take, um, but focusing more on like other aspects of what my mind does and stuff like that, and encouraging people in that direction. But I'm sure a lot of people. Um, resonate with that and can't relate to this uh, how tricky it is to find like the balance between staying really really authentic but also playing the game like enough that people will interact with what you're putting out I'm sure that's not only like a a mindfulness and yoga facilitator who deal with that but yeah I found that that's a space that makes it really tricky to be (laughs) interested in that aspect of yoga and talking about that aspect of yoga
2: So you've touched on yoga culture and specifically yoga cultures in like North America versus Europe. And I'm curious how you think gender identity and expression fits into yoga culture. And if you actually see a difference between, you know, here in North America and elsewhere. Yeah.
1: Well, I just wanted to say that probably Europe is on the same train. They're just a little slower. Um, I don't think they figured anything out. (laughs) I think they're just uh, playing the capitalistic game. Just a little slower because they're older there. But um, okay. I think they're going to get there. I don't think they figured out anything <laughs> about any of that. Uh, colonialism. Very right. live, alive. <laughs> uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, um, gender identity and yoga culture. So here, there is actually, it's really interesting, but there's a real, real, real erasure of South Asian women in the way that we tell the history of yoga in the West. Um, so the way that the story... Was completely like <laughs> erased in its way from India to here, uh, so the story uh, I'm going to tell you is actually uh, the fruit of uh, two wonderful people's research, not my own. So Tejal Patel and Jessel Parikh uh, are the hosts of the Yoga is Dead podcast, and they did like a really good, uh, really awesome series of posts on yoga matriarchs. So that's what I'm going to be kind of touching on. So basically. In the West, there's a really big name that comes up when we talk about women in yoga, and that's the name Indra Devi. So she's also nicknamed the mother of yoga. Uh, So she was a student of uh, Krishnamacharya, and she's often referred to as like a trailblazer. But the thing is, Indra Devi is a white American woman or was a white American woman. um, And she gave herself that name. Uh, Her real name is Eugenie Peterson. Uh, and she's definitely not the mother of yoga or anything like that. Um, yoga does have a really, really substantial, like, matri lineal line. There's, like, th- at least three big figures that are women that are, like, uh, mothers of yoga, actually, <laughs> that are Indian, <laughs> that are not American women. There's Mirabai, she's a, a woman <laughs> uh, in the 16th century, she was a Hindu mystic and a poet. She would write about emancipating herself from social conventions. That was her thing. There's the Janabai, also a woman in the 13th century. She was a religious Hindu poet and she wrote about how to find freedom within um, chores and home and that kind of womanly life and her daily existence. And then there's Sri uh, Sarada Devi, a woman, uh, who in the 19th century was a saint and a mystic And she is the actual real trailblazer because she is the one who paved the way for women to be able to choose a monastic life path. So this is a real story (laughs) of yoga. Um, And also, I've been studying, I've been a student for a while now. And so in the past years, I've been in a lot of rooms where there is a lot of stories that were told because that's how you teach things, you know, in more traditional uh, cultures um we used to tell each other stories to learn about the world right so really 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 old stories um that I, I was able to hear about the students of the Buddha and the students of the yogic path so stories that teach you about the path but also about yourself and and a lot of these like the students were women and these are old 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 stories there's no there was there was an eraser there's no um there's no Indra Devi being the mother of yoga. That's a lie. <laughs> That's not real. Um, so the three women I mentioned specifically, um, their stories are known by Indian people. The thing that happened is that when you export a lineage to the colonial to the colonial world, uh, it shifts. Like it's made to shift. It's made to be appealing. It has to fit within like the the narrative there. It has to be more palatable um so i can imagine that it was more palatable to tell the story of this white woman as like a trailblazer because it kind of gave white people like ownership over the history of yoga which is a complete <laughs> that was not real that was not true um and so it's true that there's an overrepresentation representation of women in yoga nowadays uh and here and I think like one of the reasons for that, I think there's many reasons for it, but I think there's like big ones that are quite obvious. I think one of them is Western capitalism. So we have something here called the fitness industry. We also have the diet industry and we have the beauty industry. So we're talking like multi-billion dollar industries. And when you have something like that in a culture, in a country, it completely shapes the way that your economy is created. And it shapes the way that any business is going to pop up and the way that it's going to be marketed and the way that you're going to interact with it. So in North America, yoga has been commercialized and marketed to women because it had to fit under this multi-billion dollar industry because it could. Well, that's why, like, when you think about yoga, even me, like, yoga a spiritual lifelong practice the first thing you think about is like a thin white woman with like colorful tight clothing Um, and the reasons like that's been that's been created that way that's been shaped that way is because there's money in us thinking about yoga this way because (laughs) we want that now (laughs) we're like oh yeah like I want the nice clothes I want to be like thin I want to do that the other thing would be like the way that everything is like hypergendered here I just find that everything is super hyper gendered, like like where I come from, men wear scarves and heels, like it's like what? (laughs) But there's like a really like toxic masculinity uh, I find in North America that's very 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 absurd. But because that's the way that we interact with activities (laughs) and our lives, when you have yoga that's depicted as like a fitness class to get more flexible and slender, and really really purposefully because of the market depicted as feminine Uh, and for the reasons explained earlier, like that's there's a reason for that. It's on purpose. So you you have men and non-binary people and queer people who just don't feel represented, so they just don't want to
0: participate because it just looks so feminine. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. I am okay. I have two separate questions. (laughs) The first is um... I feel like maybe this is my interpretation and I'm curious to know if um, you've noticed something similar or something completely different, but going back to that idea of masculine and feminine energy, um, if we associate that with like the, that stereotypical feminine, they're creative, they're more in tune with their emotions, empath- em- empathetic, um, do you think that that's almost linked to how Yoga has developed as well because typically in a yoga class you're going to think about well like tap into your inner soul your inner spirit um and that kind of language is used which maybe leans itself more to what we traditionally know as feminine energy therefore maybe women tend to lean towards that whereas you know like you said that hyper masculinity um, that's so evident in north america is like it shies away from that you know and like I feel like typically when I do see men like male presenting in yoga classes they do tend to almost be presented as more of like this quote-unquote effeminate male I'm wondering if this is maybe my poor observation skills or if like this is a trend
1: (laughs) (laughs) um well I I it's I never thought about that but um so there is not a lot of men in yoga settings uh i have seen like a lot of different looking men like there's like dad type of dude it's like super muscly and just needs to like relax a little (laughs) and can't really do have the things that other people are doing because their bodies are different and they use it differently um and you know the frame of the class is so tight you can't fit in there if you're not like a thin woman basically (laughs) um but the the thing that that's really interesting that i've never thought about is yes like poor men that are not (laughs) allowed to have introspection like the way that we the way that we as a culture have decided what's masculine feminine really keeps half of the population at bay from self-reflection um it's if it's deemed as feminine that it's not for them there's this idea of like the moon energy and the sun energy that i just honestly hate it makes me so upset because it's very uh western there's other cultures in which the moon is seen as masculine and the sun as feminine like there's no real reason for that it's kind of like oh like who decided <laughs> like I don't, I think we should ask the moon if that's okay with them. Um, But yeah, I think there's really this idea that it's womanly to have like passive, like meditation and like inner work. And it's masculine to go out out in the world and do actual stuff. I think about archetypes a lot. um, And I think like it's, I think it's harmful to classify emotions in the binary because we just are going to have to go through all of them at some point. We're going to have to embody every single archetype at at some point. Like, tarot cards are archetypes, right? And the sun is one and the moon is another one in the decks. And there's a lot of other characters that are brought forward in in the tarot deck. And they're not gendered. Like, we all have to, in the morning you know, like be a character to deal with a certain thing and at night become the sun because we want to go for a run and we want to just like scream and, you know, jump around. Like this is not gendered. It's harmful to think because if you're internalized that you're like, I'm a woman. So this is my natural state. And if you don't fit in that, you feel weird, you know, and if you actually don't want to be that, then it's kind of like an inner struggle. It doesn't need to be that way. We made that up. It's not real. <laughs>
0: For sure. Yeah. Um, I had a second question and this is maybe <laughs> backtracking a little bit, but you were on such a good roll there. I didn't want to interrupt. Um, but you were chatting a little bit. Um, and I get like, if you don't know the answer to this, is totally fine. Um, but you were talking a lot about the West embracing yoga because it was made more appetizing to the West. Right. So it was brought to us by a white woman. Um, I'm very curious, uh, your perspective on the difference between the roles of making things appetizing by presenting it through a white lens versus the exoticization, which I guess is also a white lens, but from a different perspective, like the exoticization of a practice. So I think especially in yoga, there is quite a large amount of exoticization as well, especially in like, probably maybe like a couple decades ago specifically.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think they stroke the perfect balance between the white lens and the exotic because it became so popular. (laughs) I think they just stroke exactly the balance because they needed it to be something that could be familiar, but that was far enough that they marketed it as as it's going to save your life. It's like a new trend that's going to make your body so flexible. You're going to be able to do all of these new things and also you're going to be so healthy you're never going to die. There's actually so many injuries in the world of yoga teachers that are just not we're not allowed to talk about it like i'll talk about it but i mean in the culture like you're not supposed to and to like two two generations ago like people just did not talk about it uh especially in the more like physical lines of yoga like ashtanga and all these like hyper precise body uh series um yeah people get injured all the time uh, so there's this, it was all like mystical, like, ooh, like Indian people are so healthy. You can be that too. Um, <laughs> but then like, it's not because you go to a class a week or you move your body a certain way that your whole lifestyle changes, but we need quick fixes. We want, I'll fit it into my schedule and it'll change my life. So I think they were really smart. And so actually I just wanted to go back to, it's not really a white woman that brought yoga to the West, but she's the mm-hmm. only woman that we think of when we think about yoga in the West. Uh, there's a lot of men, a lot of men. The other <laughs> thing that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. And also like, I don't necessarily want to go into that too much because I don't know a lot about it, but there's a lot of, uh, obviously like sexual harm that was done by men in yoga. Um, yes. In the West, etc. So there's, there's, um, The thing that's really interesting to remember is when they brought yoga to the West, they changed it. Like there was three main dudes. I don't want to go too much in the specifics because (laughs) I could talk about this all night. Mm -hmm. But there's three dudes and they're like, this is yoga and I'll make my own. And this is like my exercise pattern. But like in the real, real, real beginning of things, when it was just a spiritual like life practice, there was only a few poses and they were all like really soft A lot of them are just sitting down. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. all the things that you see now, like the vinyasa flows and stuff, that's actually from the 1930s. It's new. People weren't doing that a thousand years ago in India. They weren't doing like (laughs) downward dogs and shit like that. Like, sorry, things like that. (laughs) Um, that. That was invented for export because they knew, oh, quick fix physical exercise. Yes, that's what people want. <laughs> but also still with the also still with like uh, the exotic of this is so different. There's all these words that we use that aren't in English. So people just speaking in Sanskrit, chanting om, doing like bringing your your little like palms together in prayer. Just all of these like new ways to just speak and move your body that were different enough that it was
2: uh, attractive, you know. You mentioned a couple different Mm -hmm. types of yoga, like ashtanga and vinyasa. Do you know if there's any difference in how, like, gender is seen in the different types, at least in the West? I would say... Not
1: really. Um, I would say, yeah, I, w- I would say not really. I'd say it's pretty, because honestly, when you're a teacher, you don't often teach only one type. Or you you, you don't often teach, like, oh, I'll only teach, like, <laughs> vinyasa flows level three. Like, you you do a little bit of everything. And, of course, like, you need training to do um, if you want to teach restorative, you need a restorative training, but, um, usually there's people who do, who do a lot. Um, it's possible. Like, I can't really speak to that cause I don't really, not in my experience, but it's possible that if we really looked at it, we could see that maybe like more restorative styles, Hatha, like stopped yoga was more taught by women and, um, really physically demanding types of yoga, like Ashtanga maybe is thought taught more by men but i don't know that for a fact yeah
0: we've talked a lot about this kind of masculine and feminine um energies and do you think that there is maybe a pro to talking about things in the masculine and feminine binary um and i know you think there's cons to it so then what are the cons to it
1: yeah um so I was touching a little bit earlier on how I think yoga has been introduced as a super extremely gendered practice in North America. So they're feminine. So if you create a space like this, it's typically not very welcoming to people who aren't identifying as feminine. So queer people, non-binary people, trans people. So it's just not a space that is conducive to any growth any safety or anything like that and little examples of that so many times you're gonna come into a class you're welcomed with a hello ladies I'm sorry did you peer into my underpants while I wasn't looking (laughs) like why would you say that um so boring too just hi pals hi cuties hi sunshines that's nice you know Also like another one that's so weird to me is the space that's under your scapula, so the back of your shoulder. I've heard it so many times described to me as my bra line. What is, what? (laughs) Do I have to wear a bra to do yoga? And there's a lot of like weird unnecessary cueing around menstruating, just a lot of like gendered language cues that are used all the time that aren't framed with care. And there's no admissions of, like, what could live outside of that weird, like, hyper of the space, that binary. Um, so that's one problem that you encounter when you're like, oh, my God, I want a safe space for everyone. And then you're like, yeah, so where your bra line is, <laughs> I have people who are in the class that just don't wear bras. <laughs> I'm like, sorry, my what, what now? Just use the damn word. <laughs> sorry. Um, so... I think, like that's a that's that's a real thing. That's a real thing. Um, I it's happened so many times that I'm in a class. Oh my god! Once I was in a class and we were meditating, and this teacher was like, "Yes, if you're a woman, you have to put your hand like this, and if you're a man, you have to put your hand like that." And he came and like adjusted my hands, and I was so weirded out by that. But it's a it's a thing that happens all the time. It's just like hyper genderized, basically like. Yoga in the West lives in the binary. It's made its ho- house there. That's that's it. You can't really. I think there's pe- people now are a little bit more aware of that, and they're trying a little. But um, there's a lot way to go. There's a long way to go, definitely.
0: Uh, pros,
1: <laughs> none. <laughs> I don't. I don't see it. I think honestly, like I'm being a little playful here, but if you want to say passive. Why don't you just go ahead and say passive? If you want to say, okay, now we're going to put our hands on our heart and we're going to just ground ourselves into uh, a soft energy. We're going to think about uh, waves. You don't have to say feminine at any point in that. Just use your brain. (laughs) Use your imagination. It's not helpful at all. I don't find it helpful at all. Um, Nope, that's my answer. Nope, none
0: do you think that this is a a problem with the organizations that certify yoga teachers or do you think that's this is like an individual thing that like maybe exists like within each individual teacher whether it be within a yoga space or outside Mm.
1: does colonialism and patriarchy exist within ourselves or society like i'm gonna say both because we grow up in this culture um i think what's super just, like, f- so frustrating to me right now is that we're starting to see, like, this year is, like, extreme pride. Everything is pride. I'll put a rainbow on my chest. Pride. Um, so we're starting to see, like, mainstreaming of, like, queer, non-binary, trans identities and, like, discourse that are represented in media in more, like, of a pop culture space. This is quite new, honestly. So, of course, mm-hmm. this has reached to the yoga world, I'll call it. So finally... Oh, maybe, like, there's, there'll be, like, a queering of the yoga space. People are thinking about their bathrooms, having them genderless. Great. So you're going to see, like, a studio hiring, like, a queer black person for a few, like, guest teaching opportunities. And you're going to think, like, oh, that's great. Like, that's positive, right? But then if you look at who owns all of the studios in North America, who makes the money, who makes money from the yoga industry, which is also now a multi-million dollar industry like the impact of such a small gesture is absolutely not fixing anything i think responsible we all are (laughs) and as a yoga teacher i'm responsible to create a space where i can i can make that space for people who are non-binary and trans, and they want to just do yoga they just that's all they want they just want to do yoga and not being traumatized and they don't want to experience dysphoria and they just want to have a good time um so you know like giving them that that's really helpful um but yeah the yoga industry because it's an industry in itself has been feeding off what other industries are feeding off i'm thinking like the fitness industry and the diet industry and the beauty industry so um i i'm hoping it'll change but as long as there's no like a lot of yoga studios that are owned by like trans black people like i don't think it will authentically change
0: i feel like i was gonna wait to ask this question at the end um but i feel like it's a natural progression to ask it now what do you think the future of yoga is because you say like there's a long way to go to change right like if it ever would um do you think that there would ever be widespread change across lineages are we looking at maybe certain trends happening where certain lineages maybe shift itself um and then beyond that like what steps do people need to take to do this Mm. um and maybe you can provide some examples of like how you you kind of already have but maybe a bit more explicitly of how you navigate this in your own communities in your own teachings yeah
1: yeah i think it will change because i'm like this uh i'm hopeful i'm a dreamer why would i do anything if i didn't believe that things could be better No, 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 no. It can be better. I think it will be better. I think um, people are starting to realize uh, a lot of things right now. There's a lot of reckoning around racial identities. There's a lot of reckoning around, I think, colonialism, finally. Um, I think maybe generationally, uh, younger people just uh, taking more space as teachers will help There needs to be a shift in how accessible yoga is um, as a career. Uh, So that's a really big one. I don't know if people know that it's very expensive to become a yoga teacher and you make very little money. (laughs) Uh, So typically, uh, yoga teacher training is going to take you maybe like seven months, six months, seven months, uh, if you're doing it uh, on the weekends and the evenings. But if you're doing it full time, A lot of them are like in three weeks, a month. Um, They cost between like $3,000 and like $6,000. So you do that. You're like, okay, I did it. And then you're paid between $20 and $40 to teach. So when you start, you're paid $20 a class. That takes you like three hours in total, an hour to teach it, an hour to uh, plan it, (laughs) and then going there back and forth. And when you start, it takes you like three hours to plan a class anyways. So who has the capacity in their lives to invest in something that brings you such little money? Like, who has the privilege to do that? That's why we don't have a lot in mm-hmm. Canada, at least, of teachers of colors. Is because people can't afford to do that. So I think a start would be people who are in power, people who have capacity and money, to offer free spots in their yoga teacher training for people of color, for queer people, for trans people to be able to do their um, training for very little money or for free so that they can then invest these spaces and take up these roles of teachers and create their safe space and create space for their communities um, because they know how to care uh, for (laughs) their communities so th- I think that's a huge barrier. It seems really simple, but I think I think that's a massive one. Um, the other thing is I also wanted to mention that the. I think we think about, oh, gender, but I, I think it's all like related to like colonial. Sorry, I can't speak English all of a sudden. We think about gender here, but I think it's connected to colonization a lot more than seems at first to the eye because we're we are talking about a colony here uh you know we're commonwealth the queen of england all this all that like india was a colony my ancestors my portuguese ancestors tried to murder everyone who was doing yoga in india they wanted to eradicate it um and now we're appropriating it now we have white people making millions of dollars off of it And they've completely changed it as well. So it's just like a triple violence that's done on the daily. So I think like listening to the voice of Indian people, South Asian people who tell you, please don't say that. Please don't do that. This is how it's supposed to be done. This is not what yoga is about. Um, So just listening, I think is massive, like decolonizing my perspective of the binary, um, is still undergoing and I could only do it through listening to women of color and poor people of color. So I mentioned the Tejal Patel and Jessel Parikh who are from the Yoga is Dead podcast. It's Sarah Cargill uh, who's an artist uh, and uh, talks about tarot. So really, really interesting. She's a black woman. And um, Susanna Barkataki, who's a yoga instructor and an educator who is Hindu and talks about um yoga in the west a lot so just like maybe shifting the perspective i think is very important so navigating in my own community it means sharing my pronouns using gender neutral cueing so not talking about anybody's bra line uh and using language that is super clear and depending on the binary and also perfectionism is white supremacy so creating a space where people have the complete freedom to feel like they can do nothing that i'm saying they could just lay down and they're winning (laughs) so just destructing all of this hierarchy of poses as well you don't want to feel like a lot of the language that is problematic is so this is an option one and then if you can you do that and if you can you do that and this is like the third layer uh, of attaining the pose But there's no such thing as the pose right like so it's destroying the hierarchy and be like option one option two option three you're rock thank you for coming you're you're there that's beautiful um so i think that's that's really important
2: so a bit of a switch up but um you've posted on instagram before about androgynous and non-binary deities in yoga And I'd really like to hear a bit more about that. Like what are some of the examples you've used in your posts?
1: Yeah. So basically what I was trying to get at is um, not only is the binary harmful, but also we made yoga fit inside of it. Originally it's not like this, (laughs) like a lot of ancient cultures, right? Um, So basically If you look at South Asian uh, folklore and tradition and faith, so Hinduism and Hindu stories, uh, there's a real recognition of gender as being something fluid. So um, you'll have stories of deities, uh, so god and goddesses, who for a certain task to accomplish will switch gender. There's a lot of stories around that. So there's this folklore that brings this idea that already the gender is fluid. You can change it. There's, there's, um, a few examples, uh, basically in Hinduism, Brahman, which we could compare in our culture as God. So it's like the knowing force, the invisible knowing force. It doesn't have to be invisible. It's represented as well, but it's just like this, the consciousness of the universe, basically, brahman is absolutely genderless it's not a dude with a beard okay that's not that's not it it's some um, the creation the creative force of the universe is genderless but that's huge because when we think about the creation of the universe we have mother earth daddy god i don't know <laughs> it's very gendery um so that but having that just that gives you it gives you the knowledge that you can embody creation, creativity, without it being feminine or anything like that. Um, and other thing that can be interesting to bring up is you mentioned that there's androgynous deities. So there's deities that are considered as both sex at the same time. So again, massive fluidity. There's um, Ar- Ardhanarishvara, Shvara uh who is a deity who is androgynous and that that deity is said to represent totality beyond duality because they embody it all so again like completely different story um there's a lot of stories about uh deities cross-dressing as well it's just a lot more playful around gender a lot less uh clustered and they also have, in South Indian culture, a uh, third sex that they called hij- hijra um, that we don't have uh, in in uh, English, in uh, our culture.
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm also curious if um, you've done much looking into the idea of yabyam. Um, so just to give our listeners a bit of a background, uh, yabyam is considered like a a deity um as well as a symbol and it's it's a very esoteric symbol so like uh, forgive me if i mess up a little bit um because as we talked about esoteric symbols we're not meant to know about uh (laughs) but the way i see it it's um so it's two figures and it's typically a feminine um depiction with their legs wrapped around a masculine depiction um And it's supposed to be kind of a symbol of non-duality expressed through the dualistic masculine and feminine coming together as one. Um, And so I'm kind of curious of your opinion on this and maybe your perspective on this. But it seems like in order for the symbol to work, you need that duality in the first place in order for you to break down the duality. Um, So it's kind of this idea of like in order for a spiritual enlightenment to be achieved, you have to break down this duality but it requires that to be formulated in the first place. So is this maybe just semantics of language or is this critique on the language itself? Um Yeah. I don't know um if you have opinion
1: on that. I think like <laughs> I think we look at it and we think masculine and feminine but maybe they look at it and they see a third thing that's like something that we don't even have a word for, right? So this idea of a third sex. Um I think I think duality is and is helpful as a concept, right? Um, but I think I think we have to go beyond that a little and see everything as a spectrum and multiplic- multiplicity maybe is more helpful than duality. Um, I think I think the reason, okay, I think the reason it's so harmful for me, this feminine masculine is because of the culture that we currently live in and because of the way that it's structured around selling us things and (laughs) making us feel really bad about ourselves and being absolutely uh, toxic in the feminine uh, oppression and the masculine oppressions and the way that we have to be, we feel that we have to be. I think the, um, I think Yabium, maybe if we weren't, Yabium is not harmful if we're not maybe in that kind of culture, like, having a dual feminine, masculine storytelling uh, like way to show something is maybe not as harmful if you're not (laughs) forcing people into the binary at all times, right? So I think maybe we found a pro. Uh, The pro would be in another place at another time. (laughs) It might be helpful. I think there's just already so much of that That it feels like a further aggression uh here but i think if we were in kind of a different moment maybe a little bit later in history it will be something that we can dive into without feeling like like personally (laughs) pointed but uh i'm i'm sure because they had such a grasp of gender and spirituality that was so much more complex and spiritual spiritually uh you know, playful, that was something that was actually helpful to them into discussing, you know, duality as a concept. I don't think it's helpful to us very much so.
0: Maybe just before we fully wrap up, um, if for people that are interested in learning more about these topics, do you have any resource recommendations that you would guide them to? Um, we can also put these in our show notes and on our website so that if you don't have a pen and paper, yeah, right now, you so can go and I check think it I
1: mentioned it. it already, but um, making sure that you're taking notes from <laughs> For people of color and women of color so i mentioned the yoga is dead podcast that's a great spot to start all the episodes are absolutely fantastic and they have uh an episode i think it's the i think it's the uh Finyasa killed yoga or something like that I listen to all of them they're great one of them touches more on the binary um i can tell you i can have a look step and tell you after um, other than that, if you're interested in understanding spirituality and collective um, stories of you know evolving through the world without using the binary, I would recommend um, the Sarah Sarah Cargill's uh, podcast that I mentioned earlier as well. So uh, it's called uh, Tarot for the End of the World. And uh, if you're interested in having an anti-colonial perspective on yoga, um, I would recommend following Susana Barkataki, who is a yoga instructor and educator based in the States, I believe.
0: Great. Is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap her up? Uh, I'm grateful
1: for the Yabiyam moment because I think it, Again, like help me understand my positionality um, of yeah of this is the moment that we are in and this is you know what we believe in but <laughs> you know things aren't always like that and things don't always have to be like that and what's a helpful belief um, you know just being softer around what you think is the truth and what you think is right and I think I think it's helpful for me to remember that nothing is inherently bad, nothing is inherently wrong, but, uh, it's where it's positioned. It's where it lives that creates the context for it being harmful or not harmful. Yeah.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Um, I know at least for myself, I, I don't know much about yoga. Um, I'm not really a practitioner. I mean, I've, I've gone to a few classes, uh, But I also, it's not an area that I really studied extensively in my degrees. So it's been really interesting to hear everything that you've brought to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for coming. I have
2: studied a little bit of yoga, but what this discussion has made me realize is I have a lot more to learn. So thank you for teaching me
0: that.
1: Thank you for having me. I hope the wind wasn't too loud.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, it was was nice to hear too.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Nearly Numinous. For full transcripts of every episode, check out nearlynuminous.ca. There, you can also find links to subscribe to us on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Have a topic you'd like us to talk about, or would you like to be a guest on a future episode? Reach out to us at nearlynuminous at gmail.com. That's spelled N-E-A-R-L-Y-N-U-M-I-N-O-U-S at gmail.com.